Um, the idea is just to understand that the brain does change in response to the stimuli we give it. And it changes in long-term ways and in short-term ways. So um, certainly as we grow and develop naturally, our brains grow and develop. When babies, human babies are born, our brains are way underdeveloped. And if you've raised children, you know, you watch their cognitive and social abilities improve. Um, and neurologists can tell you, you know, um, what regions of the brain change during what age ranges for children as they grow. Um, certainly, there are longer term changes that can result from just our practices, um, our intentional practices like gratitude or meditation, or even things like occupational therapy after an injury. Um, and then there's short-term practices that can, short-term stimuli, sorry, that can change the brain for the moment. If you watch a funny movie, we'll see differences in brain activity temporarily. When the movie's over, those changes in brain activity might linger for a little while, but ultimately they'll go back to baseline. So, um, so same thing with, with a gratitude practice. If you do, were to start to think about gratitude right now and um, kind of meditate on the things for which you're grateful, we'd probably, if we were to scan your brain, see some changes in metabolic activity. Tomorrow, if we were to scan your brain again, it would probably return to baseline. However, what we do know is that um, after about 30 days of a gratitude practice or any practice for that matter, it starts to become a habit. And the more it becomes a habit, the more we do it, the more we do it, the more we sustain those changes and benefits. So. Thriving Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak. And today I want to spend a little bit of time digging into the concept of gratitude. I want to talk about, about gratitude. Um, gratitude practice and, and gratitude can sometimes seem to folks like, um, you know, a, um, I don't know, hippie dippy, new agey kind of um, concept or idea or practice. Um, and, and maybe that's where it had its roots, but, but what I wanna to share today is reasons why. I, I, my hope is that you'll walk away from today's podcast understanding that there's some real science and real research that's been done around the practice of gratitude and that it's a powerful tool. Simple, however, uh, you know, it's not complicated. However, it must be practiced intentionally. It must be practiced regularly and it provides reliable, and predictable and powerful benefits to people just wanting to improve their well-being in their lives, to people wanting to improve their organizations and how their organizations function, to parents wanting to um, perhaps have an easier time parenting or uh, raise happier, healthier children. And so gratitude is a, is a really powerful tool and um, what I wanted to do is get into that. I think today is a great time to get into it because we just had Thanksgiving last week and I, I hope that everyone had a, a lovely Thanksgiving and enjoyed good food and good company and good rest. Um, and then currently we're in the midst of Hanukkah. Tonight is day three of Hanukkah. Uh, and then coming up in a little less than a month will be both Christmas and Kwanzaa and Yule as well. And uh, I don't I'm not, I suspect that it's not a coincidence that all of these different cultures and religious practices uh, have holidays focused on gratitude, or at least partially focused on gratitude, all falling at about the same time of year. Um, uh, Thanksgiving's a little newer, right? That's an American holiday. Um, however, I suspect that, that, um, in older times, in, in times before our modern civilizations, 
um, people recognized that life was about to get harder in the winter. Um, crops were harder to grow, game was harder to find, survival in general was difficult, and that there was a need to intentionally focus ourselves on the things for which we're grateful, the things in our lives for which we have gratitude. So I don't know that that's accurate. I don't have data supporting that. But to me, I suspect that it's probably not a coincidence that um, several of these holidays all fall at about the same time of year, right when the days are short and the weather's cold and um, all of them sort of um, egg us on to, to practice gratitude, to think about the things for which we're grateful. So that said, let's jump in and let's let's talk about gratitude and let's let's think about this and, and sort of pull it apart a little bit. Um, what I will say right off the bat is is that you know gratitude has long been recognized as a primary structure in the building of resilience. People who practice gratitude tend to be more resilient in the face of difficulties than people who do not. And we'll get into it a little bit into why that is. Um, I'm not gonna get deep into neurobiology today. Um, I think that's beyond the scope of this podcast. However, if you have an interest in that, you can by all means go to Google Scholar or EBSCOhost or um, any of the academic um, journal listings. Uh, and you can find research that's been demonstrated, uh, that's demonstrated how um, a gratitude practice changes both the structure and the function of the brain. Um, I'm sure there, there's probably some more trustworthy academic things somewhere on YouTube, um, maybe people who have presented at conferences and things of that sort. Um, but the thing to know is that the brain is, is, they refer to the brain as plastic, doesn't mean it's actually made of plastic. What it means is that it, it's capable of what they call neuroplasticity, the ability to change. And our brain readily changes throughout the lifespan in response to stimuli we provide it. The brain can change for better or worse um, in response to what we eat, in response to how hydrated we are, in response to how well we sleep in response to injuries we incur, things like concussion can, can alter brain function and structure. Um, and when I talk about function, what, I, what I'm typically talking about is using um, technology like a functional MRI we can, or, a, or a PET scan, we can watch the brain work and we can see that when we change stimuli of some sort, um, there are changes in metabolic activity in different regions of the brain. So we might see one region in response to a particular thought or idea or image <clears throat> or even a physical stimulus, pain, for example. Um, we might see certain regions of our brain increase dramatically in metabolism, a lot of metabolic, uh, metabolic activity, um, whereas we might see other areas decrease. Um, for example, uh, there's some evidence that um, people who, who have a longstanding meditation practice, uh, when they meditate, the areas of the brain that are collectively referred to as the default mode network, they're the areas most responsible for our ego and our sense of independent identity, um, there's a decrease in metabolic activity when uh, people meditate, which is very likely the reason why um, meditators have, uh, they typically report instances of um, feeling connected to everything, one with everything, feeling like everything is related and connected is because the, the boundaries around that independent I, this is me, are decreasing in activity. Uh, same thing happens, by the way, uh, with um, psychedelic medications. And the research that's been being done studying psilocybin and LSD and, and some other substances like that for the treatment of PTSD and anxiety and death anxiety and, and all kinds of other things, um, they find that these uh, drugs inhibit the default mode network. So that when we say um, function of the brain, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the different regions that 
experience increased or decreased whatever changes in metabolism based on a stimulus. So gratitude, a practice of gratitude is absolutely a stimulus through which we can observe with certain technologies changes in brain metabolism in different areas. Um, when I talk about structure, uh, I'm talking about actual literal functions, you know, uh, not functions, structures, parts of the brain and how they might change in size or weight or density. Uh, those things are probably related as density goes up, weight probably goes up. But <clears throat> there are things, for example, um, we know that people who have experienced trauma and have active PTSD tend to have uh, swollen amygdala. Their amygdala are enlarged. And what we find with brain scans after treatment of PTSD with something like EMDR or um, one of the exposure therapies, um, I don't want to get into my preferences. I'm a big fan of EMDR, not don't love exposure therapy, but exposure therapy works for some people. Um, but the point is that when people with PTSD are effectively treated such that they no longer meet the criteria for that diagnosis, we can then do another brain scan and find that the amygdala have shrunk. So the brain structures can change. Um, the, oh, I don't wanna make the analogy to a muscle, it's not exactly like that, but a little bit. The more we work certain areas, A, the more efficient they become at working, and B, the more likely or possible, the greater the potential for some change in structure, right? Um, humans uh, and some other mammals, dolphins, I think, and um, elephants have large uh, prefrontal cortex in the brain. These are areas that are responsible for executive functioning, for decision-making, for delayed gratitude, for things of that sort. And um, there's some evolutionary psychologists that believe that through evolution, um, certain species started to use that prefrontal cortex more in order to solve problems, in order to, you know, build tools, to learn to hunt in packs, things of that sort, that over time, that area grew and grew as a result. So the brain changes. And what we have good confidence in saying is that the brain does change in response to a gratitude practice. So that's important. Um, also what, what changes I think with gratitude potentially, um, and these again are probably all related, the structure of the brain, the function of the brain, structure and function are definitely related. We, we have real good research supporting that. It's not an exact science. We can't look at certain areas of the brain, you know, light up, start to metabolize and say, oh, that person's thinking about a cheeseburger. Like we can't read thoughts that way just yet, maybe someday. But we do know um, that when certain areas light up, it's indicative of language. We know that when certain areas light up, it could be a pain receptor. We know that certain areas are visual receptors or auditory receptors. Um, we know that certain regions of the brain are more responsible for what are often called the positive emotions happiness, joy, love, um, and other areas light up uh, in response to what we might term the negative emotions, anger, shame, sadness. Um, I personally am not a fan of calling emotions positive or negative. Um, I tend to think of them as there's ones we like and ones we don't like, um, but they're, they all serve a purpose. Um, that's probably content for a different episode, but um, the idea is just to understand that the brain does change in response to the stimuli we give it. And it changes in long-term ways and in short-term ways. So um, certainly as we grow and develop naturally, our brains grow and develop. When babies, human babies are born, our brains are way underdeveloped. And if you've raised children, you know, you watch their cognitive and social abilities improve. Um, and neurologists can tell you, you know, um, what regions of the brain change during what age ranges for children as they grow. Um, certainly there are longer term changes that can result from just our practices, 
um, our intentional practices like gratitude or meditation, or even things like occupational therapy after an injury. Um, and then there are short-term practices that can, short-term stimuli, sorry, that can change the brain for the moment. If you watch a funny movie, we'll see differences in brain activity temporarily. When the movie's over, those changes in brain activity might linger for a little while, but ultimately they'll go back to baseline. So, um, so same thing with, with a gratitude practice. If you do, were to start to think about gratitude right now and um, kind of meditate on the things for which you're grateful, we'd probably, if we were to scan your brain, see some changes in metabolic activity. Tomorrow, if we were to scan your brain again, it would probably return to baseline. However, what we do know is that um, after about 30 days of a gratitude practice, or any practice for that matter, it starts to become a habit. And the more it becomes a habit, the more we do it, the more we do it, the more we sustain those changes and benefits. So, so um, as ter in terms of neurobiology, that's what the research has, has demonstrated. And, you know, that's promising, that's great but it doesn't necessarily give us um, real tangible material about how this impacts our lives, right? Um, so many people are familiar with Brene Brown. She's a prolific writer and speaker. She is a social worker who uh, has been a longtime researcher in the area of shame and vulnerability. Um, and her research demonstrated, so, um, what Brene Brown has done throughout her career is looked at shame and vulnerability and the way it impacts people. Um, and it started her early books like um, The Gifts of Imperfection started sort of on an individual level, how experiences of shame um, could get in the way of things like vulnerability and how increased vulnerability builds closeness with others. Uh, really important work, and she does a beautiful job of presenting it both written and verbally. You can, her TED Talk for a while, I, I think it's, I don't think it's the single most viewed TED Talk anymore, but it was for a while, and I'm sure it's still in the top 10 or something, so you can probably Google that and find it, and it's worth watching. Um, but in her research, Brene Brown started to encounter people who were less inhibited by shame, um, that were more willing to live an authentic, vulnerable life. Uh, and she started referring to these people as wholehearted. They were, in her, her words, living wholeheartedly. And she went about searching for what separates these people, because most of us, probably all of us by the time we're adults, have some shame-inducing experiences, right? We have experiences in our childhood, either with our parents or with our peers or siblings or whatever it is, uh, and end up with, with areas of shame. And, and shame, of course, is a sense of diminished self-value, self-worth. Um, shame is the idea that I am inherently unlovable or unworthy of belonging. And so if I wasn't fill in the blank if I wasn't the star athlete, the straight A student, the perfect spouse, the perfect parent, um, then nobody would want me around. And so um, and so what happens when I function from a place of shame is I'm very motivated to try to hide or cover up the areas of my life in which I don't excel. I'm, it's hard for me to be a beginner at anything. So I tend to want to do the things I know I'm good at. I want to tend to please people, make people happy so that I'll get in return a sense of feeling loved and valued and wanted and um, kind of live with a fear that if anybody did see me, um, you know, let's say I'm, I'm not a very good cook and I, you know, avoid making meals because if I did and people found out I wasn't such a good cook, maybe they wouldn't want me around. Um, so that's what it it looks like to live from shame. That's sort of a benign example. Um, some people um, find that experiences of shame are incredibly limiting in their life. Uh, part of what I do as a coach, a big part of what I do is help people confront and deal with shame when it's limiting them in achieving what they want in their careers, in their relationships, in their lives. Um, 
And so again, Brene Brown was experiencing the populations of people who didn't seem to suffer with this. And so she referred to them as wholehearted. And um, in several research studies and thousands of participants, what she found was that there was one single um, concept or one single factor that predicted whether somebody would be wholehearted or living from a place of shame. Um, I, I shouldn't say living from a place of shame. Let, let me say whether they were living wholeheartedly or you know, being in, encumbered or inhibited with shame. And um, what she found was the single factor was gratitude. The people who were living wholeheartedly had a purposeful, intentional, and regular gratitude practice. So that's a powerful finding, right? That's a powerful finding. There's, you know, shame inhibits a lot of people and it, it really limits a lot of people in their lives. I would say most of us, I'd be willing to gamble that virtually everyone I've ever encountered has some area of their life where they've been somewhat limited by shame. And, and not everyone is crippled by it. Some people can get over it and, and you know, work through it. And that's great. But most of us have bumped into that roadblock at some point. And what Brene Brown has found is that people who practice gratitude um, are much more able and willing to live a more authentic life, a more vulnerable life. And authenticity, going back to my silly example, is if I'm not such a great cook, then, you know, that's okay. And I can own that. And I can still cook for people in my life if they want me to. Um, in reality, I'm actually a fairly decent cook. But for the purpose of this example, the idea that I don't cook so well doesn't threaten my worth and value as a human being. And the thing that enables that seems to be a gratitude practice. Um, there's lots of other research that demonstrates um, social, emotional, occupational, physiological benefits, um, all from a gratitude practice. So what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna try to um, share my screen and see if I can't um, show you some of these outcomes. So, Okay, so let me move my screen here so that I can show you what I'm looking for. So here, the science of gratitude. If you look up top here, it says, studies show you can instantly improve work, love, and life by being grateful and sharing it with others. So um, there are studies, this is inside, you can, again, Google Scholar or EBSCOhost, you can find the specific studies. But again, if you're having a particular day in which things are not going well for you, you're struggling at work, you're having conflict with your partner, um, whatever it might be, if you were to take 15 or 20 minutes and just really dig into you know, reasons for gratitude, what are the things for which I'm grateful and why elaborate on them? That part's important, just listing them doesn't seem to be good enough. You have to unpack them a little bit. I'm grateful for my children. Okay, why? Well, for me personally, I had children late in life. Early on, I didn't think I wanted to have children. I was worried that my own um, upbringing and background would make me uh, a poor father. And so I didn't want to have children. And I eventually decided to. And now they fill my life with joy and and frustration sometimes, but so much joy and so much happiness. And I love them so intensely. I feel like my chest could explode from it. And the more I think about that, the more it changes my worldview. It doesn't just make me feel happy. It does that, but that's not it. It changes my worldview. And we'll get into this in a few minutes as to why it changes my worldview. But the point is, after that couple of minutes, I'm instantly more ready to go back to work or to re-engage with my partner and deal with whatever's going on in our relationship. I'm more able to function in my life and to be an effective leader, an effective parent, an effective human being. So that's instantly. 
Um, when we give people's um, measures and scales of happiness, you can see here, we find that um, increases in happiness for people practicing uh, expressing gratitude with someone, um, happiness increases four to 19%. Um, you can look at recall past things for which you're grateful. You can look for um, reasons for gratitude in the present or anticipate future things um, a concert or uh, an event like a wedding or a graduation that you anticipate will bring you happiness. Um, the neat thing I want to mention about this four to 19% is that uh, that's when expressing gratitude with someone and that's cool, but there's other research demonstrating that there's benefits to a gratitude practice even when it's not expressed with someone, even when it's kept private there's benefits. Um, there's benefits in physical well-being, which you'll see in a little bit, and in all kinds of other areas. Here's the workplace um, statistics that are came up in the research. So um, simply, and this is for my leaders, right? I, I have a leadership group on, uh, on Facebook, a leadership skills for survivors. Here's the most simple leadership skill. Saying thank you in the workplace to your to the people in your charge, to the people who report to you, thanking them for what they do increases. So showing gratitude for their efforts is saying thank you. Increases, increases overall productivity 50%. That's a huge, huge number. People spend millions of dollars to increase productivity 10%. And just the simple expression of gratitude a couple of caveats. It has to be authentic and heartfelt, right? If it's um, comes across as un, as uh, disingenuine, then um, it might not have the same impact. But a genuine thank you increases productivity fifty percent, free of charge, free of charge. Uh, the next statistic you'll see is that seventeen point five. That's talking about social capital, and social capital is how much people like you, how trustworthy you seem, how they perceive you, uh, how willing they are to engage with you. And so um, those who were 10% more grateful than their peers. So they expressed a 10% increase in gratitude, demonstrated a 17.5% increase in social capital. The people around them were that much more likely to like them, to want to interact with them, to trust them with um, sensitive material, things of that sort. And then the last statistic you can see here is um, ways to cultivate gratitude. And, and we'll get into some of those. There are some uh, relatively simple ones. And as you get better and better at the practice of gratitude, you can stay with those if they're working for you, but there's opportunities to dive a little deeper as well. Let's look at some of the other statistics before we get into those, okay? So again, for the folks in my leadership group, you can see here um, on this graphic, you know, uh, there's been research to demonstrate that an increase in gratitude uh, also improves self-esteem and optimism right? Self-esteem and optimism. How many times have you felt pessimistic or even hopeless about things? And, and let alone about things in the world around you, maybe about your own ability to deal with stressors or challenges or things. There are lots of ways to overcome that. Certainly therapy can help if it's at a clinical threshold. But for most of us who, who might not need you know, therapy for when we get into a rut like that and we are feeling pessimistic or even, even hopeless and we're doubting our own abilities, taking that 15 or 20 minute break to write down in a journal uh, two, three, four, five things for which you're grateful and to elaborate on them just a little bit, you can walk away instantly feeling um, more optimistic and having more faith in your abilities. Doing this also decreases stress levels as measured in lots of ways. Measured, uh, I've seen research where it's measured by blood pressure. I've seen research where it's measured by uh, cortisol levels. I've seen research where it's 
measured by indicators of inflammation. Uh, and I've seen research where it's just a self-report of how much stress do you feel, do you perceive? And in all of them, a gratitude practice reduced the measurable and perceived levels of stress. Here's where we go for the leaders. Demonstrating gratitude to your team, letting them know that they matter to you and that you're grateful. Um, and and I, what I would recommend as a skill here is letting individuals on your team know that you're grateful specifically for them, that you are glad that this person is on your team. Um, not only you can also express gratitude for the work they do or for problems they've solved or for maybe things they've come to you, problems they've brought to you early so that you could intervene. But um, I would also make an effort to make it personal, right? Um, yes, you've done good work. Yes, you've, you know, improved in areas and, and worked on your own development. But I'm also grateful for you. You have whatever specific qualities, you know, patience or wisdom or um, that I really value on this team. Um, when I was a, a military officer and I was uh, a flight commander, I made sure I had a flight chief uh, who was very meticulous and detail oriented because I am not. Um, I'm a big picture kind of person and I'm a, a relational kind of person. So I think as a flight commander, I did a pretty good job of um, ensuring that the people who were working for me felt valued and appreciated. I think the morale in my unit was generally pretty high. Um, and I was pretty good about conceptualizing where we would take the unit, how we would grow, how we would develop. <clears throat> but the day-to-day -day details um, are not my strength. And so I needed a flight chief who worked for me, who was very meticulous and detail-oriented. And so I would frequently tell him, I would make a point of telling him that how value, how valuable his um, attention to detail was for me because I'm not good at it and because I needed it and because the team would no way function as well as they do without that input. My input alone is okay. People, you know, I have strengths that I bring to the team but we'd be struggling if it wasn't for my flight chief's input. And so, um, and I'm sure that doing so and helping him feel valued made him want to work more and um, overall increased our productivity. And our team did do fairly well. So um, again, a regular practice of gratitude reduces aggression between team members and increases the team's pro-social behavior and empathy. So how much they care about each other, how much they look out for each other, how much they're willing to jump in and lend a hand to one another. Uh, so teams function better when empathy is the cultural, or when, I'm sorry, when gratitude is the cultural norm. So if you are a manager or a team leader of some sort, you might be you know, questioning yourself right now, how can I start to infuse gratitude into the workplace in such a way that it becomes part of the culture. Here's some more statistics, okay? So keeping a gratitude journal. So when we talk about gratitude practices, there are lots of them. This one study from 2003 um, de dealt specifically with the practice of a gratitude journal, where at the end of each day, people would write in a journal, three things for which they're grateful and maybe um, elaborate on each a bit. And they found that people had 16% fewer physical symptoms. This is, um, by the way, as compared to a control group. Um, I, if I'm, I read this study a long time ago, I think they had a group that did um, gratitude journaling, a group that did non-directed journaling, just keep a journal about anything. Um, and then a group that did no journaling at all. Um, the people keeping the, the gratitude journal had 16% fewer physical symptoms, 19% more time exercising. So they exercised almost 20% more than the people in the other groups, 10% less physical pain, 8% increase in sleep, 
and a 25% increase in sleep quality. So not only were they sleeping 8% longer, the sleep they were receiving was 20, at least by their report, 25% better than the folks who were not keeping a gratitude journal. Uh, in this 2004 study, emotions of appreciation and gratitude. So they coached people. Instead of keeping a journal, they coached them to practice appreciation and gratitude. Um, was shown to induce the relaxation response. So it activated the parasympathetic nervous system. So the fight or flight response is the, is the sympathetic nervous system that amps us up. Heart rate goes up, blood pressure goes up, breathing gets rapid. We get into survival mode, fight or flight mode. If we then are coached to practice appreciation and gratitude, it triggers that parasympathetic nervous system and heart rate slows down and blood pressure goes down and we begin to relax. There's a time and a place for arousal for sympathetic nervous system. I'm not suggesting we never want it, but most of us in modern culture um, spend a, too much time. It's detrimental to our health. We spend too much time in that fight or flight kind of a response with tension and worry and excitation. Uh, and the ability to induce the relaxation response is valuable. Uh, so there's some important findings. 2005, <clears throat> a gratitude visit. So this was a visit with a um, therapist or coach who helped um, for the purpose of the visit, um, um, coached gratitude. It re re reduced depressive symptoms by 35% for several weeks. The gratitude journal. So this was a visit in which you would be with a therapist or a clinician and you would be discussing gratitude and the clinician would keep you on track. So if there was a tendency, for example, to go off into discussing problems, the therapist would guide you back to, you know, validating the problem, but let's focus on the things for which we're grateful. Um, the compare, one of the comparison groups just kept a gratitude journal. So no coaching just on their own. They kept this journal. They had a reduced reduction in depressive symptoms by 30% for as long as the practice was continued. This is important um, because this suggests that when they stopped the practice, their depressive symptoms might've come back. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why gratitude needs to be a practice. It's like fitness, right? Like you can't work out for the next three months and get in great shape and then stop and just have that be, just be in great shape for the rest of your life, right? You have to, maintain your fitness levels throughout your life with an intentional fitness practice. Now, there may be times when you intensify that if you're preparing for a competition of some sort, or just because you're ultra motivated for the moment. Uh, and there may be times when it falls off a little like around the holidays, because you're focused on family and food and maybe not exercising quite as much. But ideally, people who stay fit across the lifespan have an ongoing practice. And so gratitude needs to be like that. And we'll explain why in just a little bit. 2007, patients with hypertension were instructed to count their blessings once a week, once a week. There was a significant decrease in systolic blood pressure. So um, for those of you, I'm, I don't want to give medical advice that's outside my lane, but typically, so systolic blood pressure is the top number, it's the larger number, um, and it has to do with um, the force of blood being pumped out of the heart. Um, the diastolic is the bottom number, and that's how much blood pressure remains in between heartbeats. Um, and so uh, overall, I think the diastolic blood pressure, when it gets high, is a bigger threat to health. But neither one, I mean, both, again, you don't want high blood pressure, systolic or diastolic. Diastolic is certainly more dire than systolic. But again, once a week, just counting your blessings, no other changes in diet or exercise or lifestyle and their sizes um, and their systolic blood pressure reduced. 2009, gratitude was correlated with improved sleep quality. Um, 
less time required to fall asleep, and increased sleep duration. So people who were practicing gratitude fell asleep quicker than those who were not. They slept longer than those who were not practicing gratitude and rated their sleep quality. And I, and I don't know this study. I don't know if they rated it themselves, like how they perceived their sleep, or if there was anybody measuring brain activity um, during sleep. You're in order, good sleep is characterized by your brain going through cycles every 45 minutes or hour. It should go from beta activity to alpha, to theta, to delta, to REM sleep, back to delta, to theta, to alpha, to beta, and through that all through the night. And so I don't know if they were measuring that or if they were just asking people about how they perceived their sleep quality. <clears throat> but either way, the gratitude practice resulted in, in sleep improvement. And then many studies here, many studies, that the levels of gratitude are significantly correlated with vitality and energy. So the more gratitude you practice, the more vital and energetic people seem to feel. So um, moving on from that, what I, what I wanted to um, get at next is um, why I've said several times, that it, gratitude needs to be an ongoing process. And that seems counter to where I started this podcast, right? I started off by saying that um, the brain is plastic and it changes in response to stimuli. And that's true, but it's also true that we have something uh, called the negativity bias. So the negativity bias is explained right here. Let me show this to you. Same screen again, but let me move over one. So the negativity bias. So this is a post, I guess it's Pinterest, but this is a post from the, uh, I think the uh, psychmind.com. It says our brains have a negativity bias and will remember negative memories more than good ones. And this helps us to better protect ourselves. So again, going back to negative versus good or positive, to me, those are judgments. Um, uh, I tend to not try to shy away from judgment words. So what I would say is that we'll remember um, frightening or upsetting memories far more than we will memories that brought us happiness or joy. Um, and the reason for that, we believe, is, is a survival basis. It, um, you know, if, if uh, you know, a predator, if, you know, we're walking down a certain trail and uh, you know saber-toothed tiger, tiger jumped out and attacked us and we had to run for our lives and barely got away and the memory of that would make us vigilant for future attacks from saber-toothed tigers um, and so there's a tendency for us to focus heavily on the things that upset us and so this plays out in our lives in a few ways right it plays out in our lives um, if your boss at work uh, over the course of several months tells you repeatedly what a great job you're doing. And then after, you know, 18, 20 months of that, you know, two years of that, you come into work one day and your boss sits you down and says, hey, this last project you work on, worked on is a real disaster. There's a lot of problems with it. I'm really disappointed in how this came out and I need you to fix it. You're much more likely to be to have the impact of that conversation and the memory of that conversation be much, much larger than the 18 months of, hey, you're doing great, you know, appreciate you, you're knocking it out of the park and all that kind of thing. Um, it also plays out in this sort of a way. If you wake up one morning and you have the flu, you wake up and you're feverish and shaking with chills and your joints ache and your stomach's upset, you don't have to, like, you know right away that you don't feel well. You don't have to wake up and say, let me do an inventory of how I feel and then say, uh-oh, I'm not feeling well. Something must be wrong. Let me get to the doctor. Uh, if you get out of bed in the morning and you're walking toward the bathroom to brush your teeth and you stub your baby toe on the corner of a piece of furniture, right? You don't, you notice that right away. You know it, right? You don't have to pay attention to that. The pain and the discomfort of those things alerts you immediately that something is wrong. If you, but 
Conversely, if you think about how many hundreds and hundreds of mornings have you woken up and felt just fine? Nothing wrong. Everything functioning as it should. No pain, no aches, no whatever. And nothing in you, there's no alarms that go off in your systems that say, hey, you should pay attention to how you feel well right now and be grateful for it and focus on it. Instead, what happens is we get up and we, in the morning, we go to the bathroom, we brush our teeth and we jump in the shower, we get dressed for work and we go about our routine without ever noticing that we felt well. So if we wake up and we don't feel well, we notice right away. If we wake up and we do feel well, we have to consciously and intentionally stop and express gratitude for that. Otherwise we miss it. We just go on with our day. If you go into a restaurant and order a meal and that meal comes out and I mean, don't get me wrong. Sometimes if you're really anticipating it and you're excited about it and it's exquisite, you might notice, but generally speaking, right? If you're going to a business lunch or some kind of whatever meal and the meal comes out and the meal's perfectly fine and it's good and whatever you eat and you do your business with your, whoever you're having your lunch meeting with and go on your way and don't even think about it again. It just disappears. But if you go in for that business lunch and it's awful and the food is terrible, you notice, you notice right away, right? If something has gone bad or is spoiled or rotten, you notice it right away. And this has a survival benefit, right? So you don't eat rotten food. But again, if you want to feel grateful for the meal, that was just fine, right? Maybe not exquisite, maybe not, you know, amazing, but good. You can, you just have to take a moment and slow down and pay attention to it and taste it and smell the aromas and look at it, see if it's visually appealing. And so um, what research has found, and I couldn't find a cute little meme for this. Uh, there's plenty of articles, but basically what research has found is that the cure for the negativity bias is our mindset and a gratitude practice. Uh, and it's more than a gratitude. Uh, the research has identified three or four different kinds of practices. Um, you know, um, specific uh, cultivation of positive emotions, right? So specifically um, doing activities that make one happy, things of that sort. But the biggest effect is for a gratitude practice. And the idea is we don't want to necessarily get rid of that tendency to, to recognize problems or issues because it keeps us alive. It's a survival, right? If you wake up and you feel very sick, or if you stub your toe really hard, the discomfort and pain of that is going to cause you to seek out medical attention. So if you are injured or do need um, medication or something for your illness, you'll go and get it. And we want that. We want to have that alarm system. However, if we allow the negativity bias to reign supreme, it affects our worldview over time. It affects the way we see the world. It affects the way we view our jobs. It affects the way we view our loved ones. It affects the way we view ourselves. And it affects our overall mood, our well-being. It increases systemic inflammation, which in, then impairs our immune system and makes us more susceptible to illness. And really, having a regular sort of gratitude practice helps. And so what I want to do is um, talk a little bit about how to practice gratitude since we've gotten this far. And hopefully I've convinced you that gratitude is an important practice. It makes you more productive at work. It makes your teams more productive at work. It makes you happier at work. Um, and by the way, you know, um, work satisfaction is a big predictor of longevity in a position, of productivity in a position. Uh, it also, there's a uh, I don't know if this, I don't think I showed you this one, but there's uh, a study somewhere demonstrating that people who practice gratitude make something like seven and a half percent more income than people who don't. So there's something to be said for, um, for this practice. And it does need to be an ongoing practice like a fitness practice. It does not necessarily need to be all inclusive. So what happens? Um, 
in the beginning needs to be a little bit more intentional because habit forming is difficult. But once we're in the habit, it can, it can lighten up a little bit. So the most common recommendation that I've seen for starting a gratitude practice is to start it daily for about 30 days. <clears throat> and the most common recommendation is that for 30 days, you either write down in a journal or talk to somebody about three things for which you're grateful and you need to elaborate on them somewhat. So you don't need to write a thesis, but to just list them is probably not enough. You need to elaborate enough that you're imagining those things and starting to feel the happiness, joy, excitement, anticipation, whatever it is that comes with them. And that after about 30 days, there are noticeable differences in people's moods and energy levels and even immune functioning. After 30 days, um, most people can then reduce the frequency if they want to. Some people like to keep it every day. Um, and ways to reduce the frequency, you could um, do it on weeknights and take the weekends off. You could write in a gratitude journal on the weekends and take the weekdays off. I'm still doing it weekly. And that one study demonstrated there was benefits to just weekly. Um, what I tend to do in my family, and I, I actually think uh, I, I've been thinking recently that I want to increase uh, the gratitude practice more for myself and for my children. Um, because gratitude, as I mentioned earlier, builds resilience. Um, people who practice gratitude are more resilient in the face of difficulties than those who do not. And I want that for my children. So um, what we do is on Friday nights, we have family dinner. And as part of our family dinner on Friday nights, um, and for us, it's Friday nights just because uh, I'm Jewish uh, and Friday night is like the Sabbath meal. So um, I didn't choose that necessarily because of deep religious conviction. I'm, I'm probably not what most people would call deeply religious, um, but it just felt tied to my culture and um, felt like, you know, a good excuse for once a week to have a family dinner because the rest of the week we do a lot of running around with soccer and jujitsu and things of that sort. Um, and during that meal, we each discuss the things for which we're grateful. And we go around in a circle and do that. Um, so there's, there's many ways in which you can do it. You can do it privately in your gratitude journal and it's just between you, yourself and you. Or you can do it with a partner and discuss the things for which you're grateful. Um, the research did demonstrate that the effect is powerful no matter how you do it, but it's more powerful when you share it with somebody. So um, I don't know what the reason is for that. I couldn't tell you what mechanisms play into that. Um, my suspicion is that it plays into that wholehearted living piece because keeping things private and not sharing them tends to feed the shame monster, right? And I don't know why anyone would need to hide their gratitude, but um, sharing and being more authentic and having uh, people in your life, people who matter, not necessarily everyone, but the, the right people, having them respond positively, having them respond lovingly, having them respond with gratitude for your sharing, right? right? Meeting your gratitude with their gratitude, those things probably enhance the overall benefit. So that idea of being seen, right? I'm telling you something authentic and vulnerable about myself. You know, here's what I'm grateful for. Here's what's important to me. And you're responding by listening and approving and validating. That probably magnifies the impact, I would guess. But I can't say that based on the research. I don't know exactly what the mechanism is. Um, another interesting way to fuel gratitude is by giving, by donating your time, by donating your money, by donating your, and oddly enough, there's a research finding that demonstrates that donating some money when your funds are tight, like when it's not easy, actually has a greater impact on gratitude and associated benefits than making donations when you're financially comfortable. 
doesn't mean you shouldn't make them if you're financially comfortable. And by no means should you um, donate money that's going to put you into, you know, uh, into a bad position. You, you know, you need to decide for yourself, but even giving so much as putting, you know, uh, a quarter or a dollar into, you know, this time of year into the Salvation Army bucket or something, even if your finances are tight, um, the research demonstrates that that has great um, gratitude benefits and health benefits associated with it. Um, giving of your time, very much so. Um, what you do with old clothes and items you're getting rid of, do you donate them to Goodwill or do you sell them? Selling them is a financially smart thing to do. And somebody like David Ramsey might suggest you do that. Um, and it's okay. I'm, you know, There's no judgment about it, but I will tell you the research suggests that people who donate their things um, get benefit, you know, gratitude benefit from that. Doesn't have to be that. You can sell your things and write in a gratitude journal and that still, you know, meets the need. Each of us has to determine for ourselves what fits in our lifestyle, what feels good as a practice, what we can commit to as part of our lifestyle. And we move on from there. In the beginning, um, it's important to find, you know, things and, and what I, my experience, both just as a human being in the world, but also as a, you know, as a psychologist and, and a military psychologist for 10 years is no matter how good a person seems to have it, or no matter how bad they seem to have it in life, if you hit the pause button on a person's life at any given point, any time, there's probably a handful of reasons to be upset, legitimate reasons. And there's also probably a handful of reasons for gratitude. And the idea, I'm not a sunshine and rainbows kind of therapist. The idea isn't that you should ignore your problems or pretend they don't exist or always be whistling Dixie and happy. That's not true. That's bullshit, right? That's not right. The idea is that the negativity bias will orient you to the problems. You don't have to intentionally focus on them, right? You may have to intentionally deal with them if you're like avoidant, right? You may need to force yourself to deal with them, but you won't have to force yourself to notice them. You'll see them. You can balance that by forcing yourself to see the reasons for gratitude, right? If you're having financial difficulties or, um, I don't know, God forbid, like a loved one is sick or um, your car broke down. Yeah, those are, those are problems and that's, that's real and you need to deal with those things. However, if your children are healthy and if you have a roof over your head and if you eat a couple of times a day and if your body functions relatively well and if, I don't know, you know, you're getting to go on a vacation in a couple of months or getting to see a loved one you haven't seen in a while. Those are all reasons to be grateful. Even while those other problems are existing, both can exist simultaneously. And again, the idea is not that you, none of this research, when they talked about a gratitude practice offering all these benefits, there wasn't not one single study that said people were coached to ignore their problems. That didn't happen. People are encouraged to deal with their problems, but also coached to practice gratitude. Um, in the beginning, the things for which you're grateful may seem obvious. You're grateful for your health, you're grateful for your children, you're grateful for your spouse or your parents, grateful for your home, grateful for you know a car that functions well, grateful for a job that pays you a living wage. It's fine to use those. It's great to use those. And I would encourage that and elaborate on them. Talk about why you're grateful for them, what they do for you. As you get better at it, and as this habit progresses, what's interesting is trying to find gratitude in things that are not obviously sources of gratitude. Can you be grateful for your problems and your struggles? Maybe. I don't know. You know, I know that in my difficulties that I've had in my life, minor ones and major ones, right? And, uh, you know, even things that were awful, you know, my, my biological mother died when I was seven. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. And she was sick for four years before that. So it was, you know, from the time I was four, 
um, going through that and as seven having to be introduced to death and, and not having my mom. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody and I wouldn't want to go through it again. Are there things I gained from that? I think so. You know, I think so. It took me a long time to embrace that. But I think that, you know, my empathy is better because I went through that. I think I'm more resilient now than I would have been if I hadn't gone through that. I think that I have an appreciation for the people in my life. And I say things like, I love you easily because I'm aware that people can disappear. So there's benefits. I'm, I'm grateful for those. I'm not grateful for the experience. You know, I'm not trying to say I'm grateful that my mother died so young. Of course not. But I'm grateful for some of the things that have come from that. That one takes practice. That one's hard. But I encourage you, start easy. Think of the things that are truly wonderful and easy to feel gratitude for. And as you get better at it, start searching for gratitude in the things that feel like misery. Boy, this feels awful. Well, what can I be grateful for? What can I find? Maybe nothing, but the, I think the looking, the searching for it is just as important as the finding it. I'll leave you guys on, on two final notes. Uh, the first is um, what tends to happen is people start a gratitude practice and they start to feel the benefits and they do feel better and their lives are going better. And after a while, things get busy and life takes over and they kind of fall off their gratitude practice and don't do it for a little while. And that's fine too, that's okay. But then what starts to happen, as you might imagine, is after several months, frustrations and difficulties, that negativity bias kicks back in. So going back to the brain plasticity, yes, the gratitude practice changes our brain while we're doing it. If we stop doing it for a while, though, those changes are not permanent. We will, in all likelihood, revert back to the negativity bias. And within a few months, we'll be back to kind of grumpy and miserable and stressed and unhappy. And what I would say is that when you're feeling that way, when you're feeling really grumpy and miserable, and, and we tend to externalize that, we never, we, it's rare that people say, well, I'm feeling grumpy and miserable because my perspective is no good. But usually we're grumpy and miserable because of all these things happening out here, because our children are a pain, because our spouse is a pain, because our boss is a pain. And the minute you catch yourself in that spiral, that's a symptom, right? The way you wake up with a fever and you're like, oh, I might have the flu. The minute you start to get grumpy like that, or as soon as you recognize it, ask yourself, when's the last time I did a gratitude practice? Because you may find it's been a few months. And if it has been a few months, then start again. And you'll probably start to feel better. Your problems will still be there. They just won't bother you as much. So that's the first piece is that, that negativity bias will come back. But the second piece is, so when you experience it, when you experience that negativity creeping in and you're feeling very grumpy and whatever, ask yourself, you know, as you're getting ready for bed one night, when's the last time I did and wrote my gratitude journal? Pull it out, look at the date. When was the last time? Here's the cool thing about the neuroplasticity, about the changes in the brain. So let's say you start feeling kind of rotten about things and grumpy and you're all pissed off all the time. And after a couple of weeks of that and a couple of people saying, hey, what's going on with you? You seem miserable. You have a moment of clarity. You know, you get out of the shower, you look in the mirror and you're like, hmm, I haven't done a gratitude practice in a while. And you open up your gratitude journal and you, oh my God, it's been three months. I haven't done a gratitude practice in three months. Let me start today. Let me start again. <clears throat> What will happen is the, the riding the bike phenomenon, when you start again, it'll be so much easier than it was the first time. Because those parts of the brain, you know, it, we don't, there's a, a philosophy or an idea that says we don't, we don't ever forget or unlearn things, right? What we do when, when we think we've forgotten, basically, is we replace what we know with other things. So, so for example, uh, if your let's use your dog as an easy example. If your dog has a behavior of, you know, jumping up on people who come into the house, you can, and usually they jump up on people because they're excited and they like it and they, whatever. Um, you can train them to sit 
instead of jumping up on people. As soon as a stranger comes in the house, they sit because each time they do that, you give them a treat, you reward them and whatever. Now they haven't forgotten to jump up on people and they haven't forgotten that that's exciting. They've just learned that they get a reward if they sit. All it takes is, you know, one time for them to jump up on somebody again without a consequence, without being reprimanded or whatever, told to sit, for that behavior to come full swing right back because the memory of it is still in there. And, and it works like that for us too. Once you get into the swing of this gratitude practice, just like if you've ever been on a fitness kick, right, for a while and you fell off it for a little while and you go back to the gym, yeah, your joints might ache a little and you might creak a little bit and your muscles might, but you get back into the swing of it quick, more quickly than you did the first time. And the fourth or fifth time you have to get back into the swing of it, it happens more quickly than it did the second time. So don't let it be daunting. Don't let it scare you. Engage in this gratitude practice and leave a comment. Talk to me on, on the socials, right? We've got um, on YouTube, uh, if you're watching this um, podcast or any of my podcasts on YouTube, the page is Growth and Thriving LLC. I also have a Growth and Thriving LLC page on Facebook, and I have three Facebook groups. One is Growth and Thriving After Trauma. One is Thriving Fathers, Parenting After Trauma. And the last is uh, Leadership Skills for Survivors. Le I'll post this video on all of them. Leave comments. Let me know how you're doing with gratitude. Um, if you don't want public comments, message me. Let me know. If you have questions, if you run into roadblocks or struggles, let me know. I'll respond to everyone, I promise. And what I'll do is I'll sign off by telling you what I'm grateful for. I'm grateful for my friends and my community who invest their time and energy to listen to this podcast and to watch it on YouTube and to engage in my communities. It makes me feel valued. And I appreciate you and love you all more than you could possibly know. So thank you for that. Um, be sure to subscribe on the YouTube channel. Be sure to like the videos and please leave a comment. Thank you so much. And until next time, this is Dr. Jerry Sunshine Novak saying keep growing until you're thriving. Bye-bye.